0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Take things away. Two debut novels today. Really? Mm. Fascinating. You've got Mark and I've got more out. Welcome, Maura.
1: Thank you, Jan.
0: Look, we've had many, many writers on the program with many writing styles. And Maura Burke has got a most interesting one. And that's what we're going to start with from page 119. Maura's going to read a little bit from her book, Losing It. And it's a bit about Josie. Josie talking about her big sister, Rosie. You say to Rosie,
1: what's up your ass, Rosie Posey? She goes, shut up, you little bitch. Have you got any cigarettes? You say, park drive. And she says, can I have one? You go, dad's home. She goes, I don't care. You throw your packet to her. She goes, oh, thanks. Sorry I called you a bitch. You go, well, why did you then? And she goes, oh, shut up. Rosie's the tallest one in the family. She's got nice-shaped boobs. You wish yours were like hers. Her legs are really muscly. She's a really good runner. She always used to get first ribbons. She's got pimples. She wears glasses. She covers up her smile because of her teeth. She plucks her eyebrows. She showed you how to do it
0: properly. This is, you know, this this whole um, bit that you're reading is just about um, Josie and... You get this whole idea that it's bam, bam, bam. It's it's fact after fact, and when you read it, this segment really doesn't have very much punctuation, and it's it's how we see Josie talking about herself. You've also got Josie telling her story in third person. Maury, why why do you do that?
1: Uh, it was the voice that flowed uh, the best. I tried writing. Uh, The stories in this book in a range of different ways. Um, I tried the first person and that was sort of okay. Uh, I tried the third person, that just didn't work at all. I tried the stories as a script um, and nothing was working properly. Um, And then I paid attention to that little voice at the back of my head that really tapped me into that... um, Teenage way of thinking, where everything is really fast and furious and tumbles on top of each other. And you, you know, some teenagers experience a sense of dissociation. Uh, from because things are happening so rapidly and so intensely in their lives, um, and the third, per- the second person voice just captured that beautifully and allowed that real flow um, of vernacular, of rhythm, of pace. You know, it was um,
0: yeah, really exciting way to write. At, at the pace—that's what's there. So we have the pace of the action. We've, we learn very quickly that Josie's not really good at talking about her emotions. <laughs> um, she doesn't understand her, her father, for a start. You know, she's got happy memories of camping trips, photos of this young, strong man. But what's her father like now?
1: Uh, he's a fairly sad character and um, quite a destroyed man.
0: He's drinking himself to death, really, and yes. you know he's he's at home, and she's embarrassed to bring her friends home. Yes, and and this all of this turmoil about loving a father, but also watching him die, is is hard for her. Um, basically, the men, and and this this puts back where this book is because he had a job at Pentridge Prison, the farmer, the father, and what did he see?
1: uh he uh the father was um present at the time of the um hanging of Ronald Ryan so of course um, this
0: puts us back in the 80s that's right yes
1: yeah, yeah. um oh no back in the 60s, 60s 60s yeah uh the hanging of Ronald Ryan was um 67 mm, yes. i think and um uh her father was present when uh, Ronald Ryan escaped from Pentridge on that day. So mm. that's that's the one
0: of the So the mental anguish incident. has sort of made it very very difficult for him and even the mother has tried to explain as best she could but of yes. course you know when you think about how hard mental illness is still spoken about today back then it was pretty hard. Well instead of visiting her dad in hospital she really wanted to go roller skating. Well let's have another bit from page 15. Another no punchy bit skating's
1: grouse you've got lots of new friends even if they are boys they're the west street boys and they're grouse to hang around with you go to fabio's mum's wedding reception and drink vodka for the first time you wag school and go to meatloaf's place and smoke dope and play black sabbath you get pissed in the back alley behind skating on a saturday night and get into your first ever punch-up "'You get chased by the cops and shoot yourself "'because you'd be in really big trouble "'if you got into trouble with the cops. "'You fall in love for the first time "'and lose your virginity on the back steps "'of Evan Evan's flag factory in Albion Street. "'You're 13 now and roller skating's grouse.'"
0: 13, so I think there's more to it than just roller skating. (laughs) Uh, A lot more. So you look at her friendship groups, you know, she she does have a a strong group of girlfriends from school, Linda being amongst them all. But it still just seems the boys are all a bit older, aren't they?
1: The boys that are her friends, yes. She doesn't seem to have much to do with the, uh, other than an antagonistic relationship with the boys her own age at school. Mm. No, the boys that she hangs out with are older than her, yeah.
0: There's Dave, he's, um, he's got a car, he's, he wears long sleeves to cover his tattoos. Now that's a sort of something of the past, isn't it? It certainly <laughs> is, yeah. yeah. And uh, he books a room for them at the Meadow Inn Hotel before he goes away. Now where's, well, um, um, Josie's parents think that Dave's going to Adelaide, but where's he going?
1: To prison. <laughs>
0: so we have this whole feeling about Josie and just you know sex it doesn't really mean that much to her you know with George just let him she sort of says and Hassan oh you don't really like doing it with him he's skinny all over pointy tongue and hard he doesn't touch you very much but sometimes it's easier to say yes than argue no so you sort of have a feeling that there's not been a real relationship for poor old Josie.
1: No that's right I think um, Dave is probably the closest thing to a loving relationship for her but she's a young teenager so uh, any suggestion of agency in her sexual life is not really a question that she knows how to engage with Um, you know because these boys are older she's more uh, subject to their suggestion
0: uh, than they are to hers Mm. What comes along with sex is scabies and crabs. and <laughs> <laughs> That's and delightful often, stuff. Yeah. Drinking, scamming money to, uh, to buy brand of vino <laughs> and then coming home drunk and really not being in control of herself. And she's, we, we get all of this by her own views of herself, but not the no blame, really personal blame. But she she gets angry that um, you know she's in bed with a hangover, and she hears the her ho- the house going on, acting normally, and she sort of feels, well, why aren't why aren't I being missed? That's right. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It's um uh, the I think the articulation of the teenage experience um, in the book you know it really is about that separation from that time when you're desperate to be part of something greater than yourself uh, but don't know how to find that and you're you know for many teenagers still attached to the family and can't escape from the family home but have to carve out some kind of space internal or otherwise for themselves.
0: And what you can be in control of is your own body and she, yes. she perceives herself as fat. So she's constantly dieting and she gets into laxatives and you think, oh, dear, 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 dear. But she's not fat at all. No, she's not. Mm. No, no. And then there's the drugs. Oh, dear. uh, What you do here is you actually describe how she feels with drugs. And although it's not the actual emotion, it's what she sees, the colours and the lights and things. But, of course, that also dampens her ability to control. Yes. So um, my one loud moment was this is when she decided to go and visit her son I'm saying oh no not him (laughs) my husband said what what's going on
1: yeah Yeah, that was Uh, mm.
0: so the drugs the police now we know that they've come to the house because her younger sister Maureen's run away from home and then we just hear it as the byline oh they came once before when Dave escaped from prison nothing more <laughs> so she was. He was out of her life.
1: Um, I, yeah, those little the, the seemingly throwaway lines are a really important part of the whole uh, jumble and intensity of the teenage experience, and how things seem to happen very, very quickly. That are really remarkable experiences, but have to be put in the past very quickly because everything is so intense and happening so fast. Yeah. But at the same time, so slowly.
0: <laughs> so, so, yes. Well, see, you know, with pride, she looks at the Irish dancing medal she's won and she knows she got on, uh, got close to the um, state squad in lacrosse and she's a very good student. You know, she could be a good she student. She could be a good student but she's a kid without
1: opportunities or a kid with uh, or whose opportunities have kind of been quashed before they've actually been offered to her and that's um, a pretty kind of common scenario for kids from, um, you know, Uh, I suppose the northern suburbs then Mm. Um, for kids without
0: opportunity it's really hard to to fulfill that kind of promise. Well the only thing she really loved at school was art and she tried to express herself in art and she wasn't actually questioned enough to to be able to tell her true feelings and um, was maths. But when she was looking for a career, she loved maths. She was really good at maths, but there was no sort of indication that there would be a career anywhere in maths for a woman. <laughs>
1: that's right. It's changed now, though.
0: Yeah. With her artwork, that's the closest way she actually ever came to talking about herself. She's, you had to say, I feel hard. And another time, darkness inside you when you're really hurting and there's a big waiting feeling inside, like something's going to happen. And another time through the book, everything inside would just stay there jumbled up, tangled and sticky like cobwebs. Oh, well, she does go into self-destructive behavior, risky underage sex and drugs, but perhaps to self-realization. Now, Maura Burke, this book, Losing It, when did you write it? Oh, uh,
1: about 96, I think, 95 to 97, took a couple of years to write and text and are now re-releasing it. That's right, they are. Uh, when it was first published, it went directly into schools as part as uh, It was published by um, a, an educational publisher, went directly into schools as part of a package. Um, uh, and that was a really great audience but a very limited audience. Yeah. And I always thought
0: that the book had uh, more of a life than that. You're right when you call it punch. That's what it had. It had punch, this book, just as Josie, t- Josie hopefully did in the end. <laughs> Maura Burke really enjoyed it. Losing It, published by text.
2: Going into schools without punctuation? My goodness. <laughs> That's coming from a, an English teacher. So, no, very important, but more important for parents to read these sorts of things as well. But... Jen, my novel today is an award-winning but unconventional murder mystery. We don't come across an actual body until the end of the novel um, and the police investigation only occurs in the final chapters. The book is Wimmera and the author is first-time novelist Mark Brandy. So, Mark, welcome to 3CR. Great to be here, David. Thank you. Now, the discovery that begins the book is A Barrel in a River as he got closer to the middle of the river, Jed thought he could see bolts screwed into the top of the bin. There were a lot of them all around the edge of the lid. It looked like someone wanted it closed up really tight, like they didn't want it ever to be opened. Now, you're leaving a lot for the uh, readers to imagine. Mm. That's a sort of... uh, And that's sort of throughout the book as well. Mm. Um, It encapsulates your style to a certain degree
3: yeah i mean i guess that's what i enjoy reading i enjoy works that allow a bit of room for the reader to enter the story uh to make their own connections and i think that that just resonates much more deeply and stays with you a lot longer i find that some stories i I read which can be beautifully written but if it's all laid out for me um A month later, two months later, I can't
2: remember it. Yeah, the reader's imagination is far more powerful, a tool Mm -hmm. in many ways. You set up the expectation, the reader then has to imagine it for themselves. Mm. So, yes, Mm. they become part of the creation process. Yeah,
3: and I I think that even though we, we writers can do a good job, I think the imagination is a far more powerful tool and... Uh, You can create a much more vivid world in your own mind or in a reader's Mm. mind than you can on the page.
2: And that becomes incredibly important then in the uh, section that follows or the first section of uh, the book uh, where we get the story of Ben and Fab in rural Victoria. And the other difficulty, it's not a difficulty, but uh, in terms of a murder mystery, this is not an investigation. Mm. This is an exploration mm. of the lives of Ben and Fab, mm. which lead us to um, the body we assume is in the barrel. We're not mm. told yet, but um, Ben and Fab. And you're in rural Victoria, Wimmera. Your background was... You were raised? Yeah,
3: yeah. I was actually originally born in Italy, but I was raised in the Wimmera region. Uh, I grew up in a pub. Actually, my parents had a pub there for about 30 years Um, and that was a wonderful experience and I came to meet people from all walks of life there, which
2: really helps my writing today, I have to say. (laughs) Well, the characters you get in the pub and such like and country characters, but it's an era when uh, we had wogs and racism Mm. and such like Mm. and I was just thinking you can't be that old to know what it was, (laughs) but you were telling me about how the dis- disconnection in some ways between uh, the country and the city.
3: Yeah, I think that there was an old joke when I was growing up that where I grew up was kind of three hours down the highway from Melbourne, but about 20 years in the past. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that was true. We we had kind of cultural acceptance occurring in Melbourne through Wogs Out of Work and, and that kind of movement. Still in the country, it was very different. And like the school that I went to, I was the brownest kid in the schoolyard, you know. And there was what, one, did you have,
2: what did you have in your sandwiches?
3: <laughs> salami, of course. <laughs> but um, it was, you know, there was one Italian family in town and that was us. There was one Greek family, one Chinese family. So it was very monocultural back then.
2: And the abuse?
3: Did you, you get abused? Oh, in, in terms of bullying in the yeah. schoolyard? Oh, my word. Yeah, it's um, sort of yeah, it's stuff that you had to settle with your fists back then. Things were, were certainly different.
2: And this is what's taking place mm. uh, in Ben and Fab's uh, life. Of course, there's an innocence in some ways about some of it. Um, ben goes and has lunch at Fab's place. Buongiorno, Fab's <laughs> mum called out really loud. I cook you pasta, you eat. You can almost hear the, the, the Italian nature of it. It's a different lifestyle as well. Um, he could daydream for hours building imaginary worlds at the back of the yard, up near the shed. Mm. I mean, it's a pre-digital age of of innocence and enjoyment. But one scene actually uh, caught my attention. Um, Again, the innocence of um, backyard cricket... Um, on the first ball of the third over after lunch, Fab danced forward and clipped it crisply from his toes, sending it over Ben's head and straight through a large sash window. No. They both watched in silent horror as the glass collapsed and jagged shards crashed to the ground. Sophia, who was asleep on the grass, yelped and ran up the driveway as quickly as Ben had ever seen. It all happened so fast after that. Fab stood still, wide-eyed and stunned. Ben ran down the driveway and wrenched the bat from his hands. Mrs Moretti came out first, her big... "'Big Italian eyes like shiny saucers. "'She rushed down the timber ramp, "'her hands slapping at her cheeks, "'her mouth going for air like a goldfish. "'I did it, Mrs Moresi. I did it,' Ben said. "'I'm sorry.' But it didn't make any difference. There was a side door that opened out onto the driveway. Ben had never known about it until then, until Fab's father came running out. He was wearing white underpants and was yelling something in Italian as he ran down the driveway. He was enormous and hairy and he was swinging a thick leather belt with a big brass buckle. Fab was already crying, ''I did it, Mr. Moresi,'' Ben said, ''I did it.'' Mr. Moresi didn't look like he heard what Ben said and he grabbed Fab by the arm. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on here. There's the innocence of backyard cricket and who hasn't broken a window (laughs) playing backyard cricket? About half a dozen
3: growing up, actually. (laughs) Yes.
2: Um, But the undercurrent here then is domestic violence in um, that setting Mm. as well Mm. um, and the prevalence of it, but also then the relationship between Ben and Fab and... Mm taking or sacrificing themselves for each mm, other mm, in many ways. Mm. So you've created, um, well, a fabulous relationship between these two boys.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I was really... That that first part of the novel... It, it, I mean, at one level it is a story about crime and vengeance and those things, but it's also a coming-of-age story and a story about friendship, and I really... Um, was determined to have that shine through, and it's there's a shifting dynamic I think that occurs between Ben and Fab as well.
2: But that explains then some of the uh, action that later takes place, where they're acting on the other's behalf mm. in many ways. So it's sort of encapsulated in that. Um, we also have, um, well, uh, pornography, as in it was a rite of passage mm. in some ways. Mm. Um, where you've got um, a porn magazine and um, basically Ben uh, is looking uh, for somewhere to hide this magazine to keep it away from his parents. Again, the discovery. But there's a darker side to this magazine.
3: Mm. Yes, and it's introduced to Ben, that magazine. It's not something that he discovers on his own and... There is, of course, a stranger who comes to town, a man named Ronnie, and he. the boys are quite fascinated by him in some ways, and he is quite charismatic, uh, but he inevitably casts quite a long shadow over both
2: their lives. But again, you are leaving this to the reader's imagination. Mm. Even though he said he'd come back later, so Ronnie's come calling at Ben's house, even though he said he'd come back later, he kept standing there. He kept smiling too. And Ben saw how his teeth were kind of brown and sharp-looking, funny angles, crooked. It felt a bit weird standing there in the doorway with Ronnie smiling at him. Mm. Now, you don't say anything more, Mm. but the audience is going, no, no, whoa, (laughs) the reader is. Um, Yeah, it's um, the attention then that Ronnie pays to Ben, Mm. um, getting him to mow the backyard, or paying him to mow his backyard... And introducing him to the porn magazines um, And this is Creepy um, mm. But it's Coming from the reader that, mm. that sense of fear
3: I think too being in that kind of Close third person viewpoint of, of Ben so he's seeing it through this Kind of innocent world And you're looking over his shoulder I guess As, as the reader and as the adult And just concerned for him Of course and concerned for what's happening But and he, he's getting a sense that something, I think, is not quite right. I think there's something instinctively at work, but he's also um, confused about his own, I guess, burgeoning sexuality and those things occurring. So it's, um, it's a bit of a heady mix for a young boy, I think.
2: But at the same time, um, his parents say, oh, you know, we can have Ronnie over for dinner mm. sort of thing. They're not getting any signals. Mm. So what's going on in this you know country yeah. innocence or instinct? What's... What's happening to the instincts of people? I think
3: that our inclination is to think the best of people always, so I don't think we immediately jump to suspicions about about strangers. And some people, some offenders, and I'm careful not to give away any spoilers, but some people, um, they, they certainly take a lot of care to ingratiate themselves with, with pe- others and with communities and, and manipulate people and typically, uh, you know, heinous offenders are not um, silly people. They can be quite intelligent but they're uh, operating in I guess a darker realm than most of us.
2: And we've got so the innocence of country life of mashed potatoes and fish fingers uh, and the insidiousness on the other side. But the novel then goes to part two which is then after uh, school Ben and Fab have sort of uh, parted ways. Ben went to um the catholic private school in the next town along fab stayed in the high school and it's now a slightly different era um it's centerlink for fab and pushing trolleys in the supermarket car park what's mm. happened <laughs> it's
3: the poor guy uh, well look i think that this does occur in country towns too where you can become particularly it's, it's an odd dynamic because you can have these difficult relationships in the schoolyard and then you're stuck in the same town with these people and running into them at the pub and you know it's just
2: and they've got reputations their, their bullying has led to stints in prison and all sorts of things that's right um but then it's fab looking back over his life or trying to find a future which doesn't seem all that possible but then there's halfway through this section there's a wreck a recollection of Fab going rabbit hunting um, with his father um, and they've caught a rabbit, he cut quickly and precisely announcing each stroke, each slice of flesh rip of skin and crunch of bone first we cut his feet off we slice his skin along his belly, loosen his skin from the meat, we pull his skin off his back legs first, pull the skin toward his head like you are taking off his jumper so this is a moment of, um, in some ways, intimacy between father and son, a moment of violence, uh, the rabbit. There's a rabbit's foot then that comes out of this that um, Fab's father gives to uh, Fab. So you've created a number of things here: the rabbit's foot for luck, and that sort of becomes a an element of pathos in the in the story. What have you got to say about that? Well,
3: it it was kind of it was a natural progression, and and the odd thing, I suppose, is that the the novel originally began with that particular vignette, and so I had those two characters, and I I just kept returning to it and thinking, "There's more to this. There's more around this story," and it really grew out of uh, Fab and his father, the the scene with the um the skinny of the rabbit and the, the rabbit hunting. Um, serves as a metaphor in some ways for what
2: occurs uh, more broadly in the book. We don't want to necessarily give too much away, but that metaphor is significant in terms of, well, you know, you do cut up an animal uh, like that. And I've been rabbit hunting. I've seen it done sort of thing and pulling the, the skin off and such like. But also then the duality of that relationship with his father. on It's, it's violence, but... Uh, Is compassion the right word? It's probably not. It's uh, challenging.
3: Yeah, it it is. I think that's uh, one of the strongest moments of intimacy you get between Mm. the two. And so... I guess, in contrast with some of the other things going on between father and son. Even though it is a brutal, violent kind of moment, it's also um, a a loving moment in some ways.
2: But it then reflects what's going on in the country town, the innocence and Mm. and joy of country life and going yabbing and Mm. and such like, and that insidious underbelly. Mm. So you've got that duality going uh, all the way through, which leads us to part three, where the past and present meet. And this is where we get... Uh, senior constable Vincent Mackey, uh who wants to interview Fab, and it's ostensibly about the barrel hmm. and the bin and what was found in it. But it's an well, a traditional investigation point. But then we've got Fab and Ben also um at a um the end of year end of year twelve party, hmm. etc, where Ben Finally, tells Fab what's happened. Although we don't get that necessarily, all we we get a line. But Fab couldn't leave things like this. Not now. Not that he knew. Mm. Again, you haven't told us, or that, that discussion is not there. Mm. But we know. Mm. We know, and that leads to what um, eventually happens. So the investigation is complete in many ways through that social interaction between the two. And
3: and I think the investigation in a lot of respects happens in the mind of the reader and the reader's investigating themselves along the way and I think that just makes for such a a rich reading experience.
2: Mm -hmm. I certainly hope it does. And the end of the novel, uh, because I can give this part away, uh, is a a form of pathos where there is a potential future for Fab. He's got the potential for a, a factory job Uh, He's given his rabbit's foot to Lucy, the local barmaid, and there might be a future except events finally catch up with both Ben and Fab Mm. and the reader can find that out for themselves. Well,
0: it's not the event. It's time that's caught up with
2: us, David. Indeed. My author, Mark Brandy, the novel Wimmera, and it's a hashay publication
0: and i was chatting with moira burke about her book losing it a text publication